Welcome to the Ditch the Suits podcast, where we get real about the stuff no one in the financial world wants you to know about. Learn how you can better manage your family's wealth while protecting it from financial exploitation and so-called financial advisors. Here's to your financial awakening. Welcome your host, Steve Campbell and Travis Moss. Well, welcome back to Ditch the Suits. I'm Steve Campbell here with Travis Moss. We are five episodes into this thing, and it's been amazing. Travis, any uh, any initial thoughts five episodes in? I'm super excited. Uh, we got a new format uh, today. We're going to break it down into three different sections. First section, something you can learn from business. The second section, how you apply that to your personal finance. And then the third section, how the financial industry is kind of messing with you uh, regarding this con- uh, topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, so if if you want, if you just want to go right to the personal finance part, you can jump right into that. If you just want to go into the part about the industry, you can jump right into that. We'll put it in the show notes so you know exactly where to go. And if you're if you're finding value in this, you're really enjoying it, please throw some stars, hit us some comments on there. That's how other people know that this is worth their time to listen to. It'll really help us get it out there to more people. And we totally appreciate it all. Uh, we've had some good reviews on there, some, some nice responses from people. So let's keep it going. Yeah. So as Travis said, you can subscribe, you can follow, leave a review. Somebody else had stopping by, may meet your review and listen to an entire episode. So uh, we've been leading up to this conversation two episodes ago now. This is episode number six. We talked about you should be viewing your money like a business. The last episode we talked about, well, then who are the players in your money business? And today we want to talk about all things scoreboards. You know, businesses have a scoreboard, you should have a personal scoreboard, and then the financial industry has a scoreboard. So as Travis said, in this first piece, we want to break it down all things businesses and what we can learn from business. So Travis, what's the business scoreboard people should be aware about? Well, first, a business needs to have a scoreboard. Um, Whether you're trying to win or not, you're trying to move forward. So you're trying to move forward in business, you're trying to move forward in life. The only way you know you're moving forward is if you keep in score. So this whole idea that, ah, we don't need to keep score, you know, we don't need winners and losers. It's not about winning and losing. It's about moving forward. So we got to have a scoreboard so that we can measure ourselves moving forward because there's little things that go into actually propelling us forward. You don't just like keep progressing and keep getting bigger or keep getting better um, without any elements being introduced to it, right? There, there are things that make things improve. Right. So from a business standpoint, we want to set up a scoreboard that's tracking the things that make the business improve overall. And we talked last time about leading and lagging measures and things like that. Mm-hmm. We're looking for what are the things that make the results that we want happen. So we're not necessarily tracking the results, let's say so much as we're tracking the little things that get us to that. So when we start to track things, though, we first kind of have to set a framework or a benchmark. We got to know where we're starting from. Mm -hmm. And then we can identify where we want to get to. And then you can work backwards to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to get from where I'm starting from to where I want to get to? So this is keeping score, right? You're you're starting here and you're going there and you have to track your progress along the way. So there's a couple of things that we have to do as a business consistently. And businesses that are consistently outgrowing or or growing exponentially are doing this well. Number one, they're they're regularly appraising their business. And so if you think about an appraisal, 
what you're doing is you're saying, what's the business worth today? Kind of like you would with your house. Mm-hmm. Most people, they don't appraise their house though until they're going to sell it. Right. Or unless they wanted to refinance or something like that. But from a business perspective, if you're making business decisions without understanding how the decisions impact the value of the business, that's silly. Right. You could be wasting a lot of money. Just like, you know, if you have a house and you do some major improvements of the house, you may not get dollar for dollar back from that. Well, you want to know that before you put a bunch of money into it. You need to do the same thing with the business. So you appraise the business. A lot of people will think, well, I just do an evaluation. I go down and talk to my CPA and they do some kind of multiple cash flow or something and give this to me. That's not the type of appraisal that we're talking about. We're talking about the type of appraisal that gives you an idea of what your business is worth based on, let's say, a range from a low scenario, like a a bad case scenario to a great case scenario. So if your business was the cream of the crop, the absolute best business out there, and there were buyers banging down the door, what would it be worth? And if your business, you know, had some major issues, some major risks, some major problems with it, what would it be worth? You're looking for that type of appraisal, not kind of a pie in the sky type of thing, but an actual, if I took it out and I wanted to sell it type of thing, what do I need to understand about how to move up the scale to make it more valuable? Mm-hmm. So that kind of puts a peg in, 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 the, uh, in the chart for you. you. If you understand where you're starting and you got to be really honest and, and, and humble about this, where am I starting? Where could I be? You know, that's where you start with a peg. Everything you do with your business, you want to move that peg forward, basically more towards a higher value. So you have to at least have a method to be able to gauge improvement. But the appraisal is how you start to benchmark that. You have to do a personal readiness assessment. So if you're a business owner and you're looking at the business and saying, if I were to leave this business tomorrow, Am I ready? Right. And the reason why that's so important is because it can it can really influence some of the things maybe you should be doing to the business and maybe you haven't been. Right. For instance, people who are ready to leave a business or preparing to leave a business tend to put uh, new layers of leadership in place. They invest a lot in that second layer of management or leadership that's right behind them. People mm-hmm. who aren't ready to leave tend to push that off or fight it. There's a business readiness assessment. What if I had to leave tomorrow? I don't have a choice. I have to leave. I've, I've died or I'm disabled or or there's regulations or so, some reason I can't be in my business anymore. Would the business survive without me? These, again, these are, these are ways to identify risk and things to work on that go on and improve your appraisal. Because if you're going to look at somebody's business and say, I want to buy a business, you're going to look at it and say, but how important are you to the business? Because I may not want to buy you as the business owner. I really want to buy your business and have you right. go do something else. Right. I need to understand the ramifications of removing you out of that business. So is your business ready to operate without you? Mm. Would it be better without you? Would it be worse without you? Those types of things. And then there's a business attractiveness assessment, which is basically we're going to look at the business and say, now you as the business owner, this is like your child. And nobody ever says, hey, I you know, don't have an attractive child. Well, people are like that with their businesses. Most people don't see the warts on the businesses. They just look at the business and my business, my heart and soul, all my energy, everything I've ever done. It's all in this business. 
Um, of course, there's people that would want to take this over and pay me top dollar for this. Mm-hmm. But if I were to put you on the opposite side of the table, a good buyer is going to be picking that thing apart. Right. And tear it apart. It's going to right. break your heart to see the things that they, the skeletons they look for in the closets, which are probably there. It's just to us, they're not a big deal because it's part of what we built and kind of grew up around. But to buyers, it's how attractive is your business actually to them? If you're not ready to leave your business, if you haven't set it up so that you could leave, if you're doing things that aren't really contributing 100% to the value of, uh, increasing the value of the business, if you're sucking resources out to support your lifestyle that otherwise should be being reinvested, those are all things that are going to depress that appraisal value. Mm-hmm. Those are risks. Those are, those, are, those are things that we've got to get our arms around and get some control over. Those are really, if you want to think about things that you need to measure, that those are the things to get up on the scoreboard. All right. So, so let's go back over those four though, right? You've worked with business owners and it's, I want to pick your brain on this. First piece you talked about is an appraisal, right? You want to know yep. top to bottom, what is it worth? You talked about personal the, the, readiness. The, the range of what it's worth. And not just, you're, you're not just going to say, Hey, my business today is worth $3 million. You're going to say my business today is worth $3 million, but it could be worth $6 million with some work being put on this thing. Right. So that's helpful. So it's a range of what it could be. Then he talked about personal readiness assessment. Yeah. He talked about the business readiness assessment and then business attractiveness. Yep. In your experience working with business owners, just to help the listener who may not be tackling all of these, some of these, maybe has gone through one or another. How ready do you think business owners actually are that you've spoken to that have nailed all four of these? Or can you give us kind of an idea of, as you've talked with business owners, are there some that people excel in one, but maybe forget about the other. How, how well put together do you think most businesses are in these four areas? Almost all businesses would probably fail this test. I think the uh, Exit Planning Institute puts out some numbers and stuff. I think the number is somewhere around 70% of businesses, the, the business transition that ends up happening eventually, you know, yeah. businesses are sold or, or people die and they're passed on, like end up in some kind of regret type of situation. Um, and it's all, you could always trace it back to the business owners weren't ready to leave, the business res- wasn't ready to lose the business owner, or the business really just wasn't that attractive. But I got blinders on, and I think it is. And so, and we see this an awful lot. In fact, a couple of the most common mistakes I see business owners sell the business without even talking to their CPA or the key people in their business or family members are like nobody else really about the impact of selling that business and what it all means. There are things that they could have done a lot of times who have increased the value of the business, um, not necessarily taking huge amounts of more time. It's not like, okay, this is going to take me another 10 years. A lot of times it's just tweaking certain things that they're doing and, and they're not doing it. And part of the reason is, is when you're a business owner and you're running a small business, your feet are in the fire and you know what you do on a day-to-day basis to keep it on the rails, to keep everything happening, to keep the staff involved and try to find talent, bring them in and try to keep them, you know, develop people, develop business, deal with clients, that kind of stuff. But how much time did you actually get to really step back and become a student of business itself? And not only a student of business, but a student of the type of business that actually gets real value when you go to sell it one day. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I talk to business owners a lot of times. They don't actually understand the different transit transition points. So they don't understand if they were to sell their business, which is really where the value comes from, what the different types of sales are. So if you don't understand the different buyers out there and the different types of sales, how could you possibly really have a good idea of you know, really how to amplify the value in that business. And let's face it, most people want to get good value for it. Some people say, hey, I don't, you know, it's a family thing. Our interest is just keeping it in the family. But yet I still see them selling it to their their next generation, not necessarily gifting it, selling it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if somebody is buying it from you, they have to create the resources to buy it from you. So that's a function of how well you set it up for them. Right. Because a lot of times it's using internal cash flow or something, right? So it's, in general, we're missing some of these points. We're either focusing way too much on the business or way too much on ourselves, or not enough at all on our personal finances because that's just kind of like this. I've never had to worry about it because I always had the business. The business made money. And so, so normally where one of those balls is being dropped pretty consistently. Well, and if you're listening to this, as we said, this is a format today. We're talking about three areas. We're talking about business owners. We're talking about your personal finance, and we're talking about the financial industry. Maybe you took a chance and you decided to listen to this first section, even though you might not consider yourself a business owner. We want you to understand the picture that we're going to paint and where we're going with this, where we want you to understand how businesses should operate. So then how can we apply some of these same principles to our own personal life? So if you are listening to this, you know, Travis and I are trying to have very real, raw conversations with people. If you are a business owner, wouldn't you want to know the good about your business and the bad? You don't want somebody just to tell you what you want to hear. Would you rather know all the things that you could change that could just improve the value of your business so it's worth what you think it's worth? You don't want to get to this end of this thing 30, 40 years into it. And as you said in number four, business attractiveness. You may think as your blinders are on, your business is worth X, but a buyer comes in and goes, it's actually only worth Y. What are you going to do? Are you just going to keep working? Are you just going to keep trying harder? What if it's not just about trying harder, but it's having real tangible points that you can build off of to improve? And I think this is where we're going to kind of go then to help somebody that's in this business. How do you start to then identify I mean, what, what are we working towards? What is it for? What are our goals? You know, what are our priorities? How do you start to get these pieces in place? Well, you have to first realize that when we are talking about value and building value in the business, the people will say, well, I'm not selfish. So I'm not, I'm not worried about getting, you know, every t- dollar out of this thing. There's other reasons I'm in business. Mm-hmm. But the value of the business is a reflection of the stability of the business. Right. It really is That's because good. when yep. when you're looking at the value of the business, you have two primary components. You've got cash flow, and you've got risk. Mm-hmm. And the more risky it is, the less of a multiple you're going to get on the cash flow. And risk can be a lot of different ways. Not saying that it can't be a growth business and you can't still get a high multiple because it's a growth oriented business. What I mean is, if there's some systemic type of risk in the business that is not associated with the rest of the market, if it's self-imposed risk, that is risk that's going to cut out the value of your business. You want to know that because what a business owner or what a buyer is basically saying when they look at, at it and say, we're not going to, we're going to pay you on the low end of the value scale is, man, your business could be out of business pretty soon if, there's, if, if you get some bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're identifying to you that there's some stuff you got to work on. That's what that means is 
you know, a, a bad goal of it, like we just had with COVID and maybe your business goes under, maybe that would have been flushed out by doing some of these assessments and doing the appraisal type of process. Right. Um, so you're using it to identify, you always start with planning risk first, whether you're doing personal planning or business plans, all about risk. What happens right. if you die? What happens if you're disabled? What happens if, you know, on the personal side, what happens if you lose your job? Well, business side, what happens if you lose your key key employee? What happens if your key people quit, go across the street and open up competition? Mm-hmm. What happens if your uh, key customer goes out of business? What right. happens if your um, suppliers go out of business? What happens, right. you know, most most businesses, like the lion's share of small businesses right now that are of any value are all run by like the baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're rolling along, you're thinking about retirement someday, I'm going to retire and sell my business. What happens if your customers and your suppliers all retire before you? Hmm. Now you've got no customers, and no suppliers, and your business can go out of business just because you don't, the business dynamic changed because they all went out first. We don't think about that, but that's a legit risk. Sometimes you hear about it from a, a term, you know, you could have consolidated clientele where you know you've got too many or or too too much of your business wrapped up into too few clients type of thing, um, or too much of your business tied up into just one product or something like that. There, there's there's consolidated risk there, concentrated risk. So we want to be focusing first and foremost at the risk. If I can remove as much risk or compartmentalize it, if I can put brackets around, it's like bumper bowling. I can put some bumpers in there so it can't get too far off the tracks or at least there's contingency plans built in place or maybe agreements or contracts built in to try to protect the business in unlikely unforeseen events, which frankly, every event that puts a business normally out of business is an unlikely unforeseen event because literally if you knew it was going to happen yesterday, you would have done something about it before it happened. So almost everything that, that kills a business or sabotages somebody financially is something that we didn't know was going to happen. Right. And we get, you know, we get caught, you know, not paying attention and we get in trouble. So you identify risk. The opposite of a risk is an opportunity. Yep. So right there you go. You, you have your things that, that you can, you could take those risks and those opportunities and prioritize them, basically put them in order. You have to look at, the, and normally you're going to focus on the things that would make the biggest impact to you negative or positive, those things normally you're going to tackle first. But it's a little different for everybody. So once you've identified these goals and maybe you've got some priorities, you go into what we call master planning, which is where you start to establish the measurements so that you know when you're achieving these things. Yep. Because if you have to if you have to de-risk or um, reduce your risk exposures to things in order to create opportunities or take advantage of opportunities, you now know what you have to track. You have to track those things, not mm-hmm. the end result. Those things lead to the end result. If I de-risk and I increase opportunities, I'm going to do better in the long run. I'm going to have more value. Right. So I don't need to track the value. I need to track doing those things to de-risk and ferret out opportunities and take advantage of them. So it's overwhelming though, because you're going to come up with a huge laundry list. Anybody's ever done this? They've got, you know, they've they've got lists upon lists and it goes in the pile of lists on their desk. Every time they go to a conference, they get more lists. So how do you actually take those and do anything with them 
for, and this is a little different for personal stuff than it is for business stuff, but for businesses, we put you on a 90 day sprint cycle. So basically you take a business initiative and put it on, you know, you have so much capital. We, 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 um, you can call it creative capital. You could, whatever you want to call it, come up with a term for it, but you have so much energy within your organization to spend on stuff outside of the day to day. You got to keep an eye on this because you can overwhelm people. And when you overwhelm people, it just shuts down. Right. But you got so much time, so much extra energy. And so you, maybe you could do one or two things every 90 days. And maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody else at your business working on it. Right. But you've identified the fact that somebody needs to work on it. But you're going to try to move forward or each team of people or how, depending on how big your organization is, you're going to try to move things forward in 90-day sprints. Doesn't mean you complete something from start to finish in 90 days. It means that you hit a milestone or a benchmark or a gateway within 90 days, and then you move on to the next step. So if you're trying to de-risk and you have key employee risk, you're not trying to you know overhaul the entire business in 90 days. You're trying to come up with a plan come up with a recruitment strategy, come up with a compensation plan. Those themselves might be done over a series of 90-day periods, depending on what your capacities are, what the energy level is, you know, how much help you've got, that type of thing. But it never ends. The one thing about planning, whether you're a business or whether you're an individual, improvement never ends. The only time it ends is when you end, right? So the business is done. Okay, now you don't have to get better anymore because it's over. Right. Or you're gone. So, okay, now you don't have to get better anymore because you're gone. But that's the only time improvements should stop because otherwise things are constantly moving past you. So we have people, as you've talked about, that are baby boomer generation. But I also know because I've had people reach out to me listening to the podcast that are younger, aspiring entrepreneurs. We're trying to help business owners, regardless of where you are start to understand that you need to know the assessment of what your business could be worth. What are the steps you want to put in place? Because then you know what to work for. I mean, wouldn't that be easier to know exactly in these 90-day sprints what exactly you need to do to go from that $3 million to $6 million business? Why? Because it's got to be tied to something. What are we doing it for? You don't want to just get to the end, as you said, and it's not what you thought, and it's a womp, womp, letdown. I mean, what would it look like if you were willing to take it from three to $6 million because you were thinking about your spouse or your children or who's this getting passed on to? What legacy you're creating? There's nothing wrong with being successful. And as you said, we've tried to lay the groundwork that most business owners struggle with all four of these aspects. Maybe they have one or two that they're really good at, but they've never thought about what happens if I don't show up to work tomorrow? And it's not just buy a product that's going to help, but really have these assessments and these questions with understanding what are you working towards and what are you doing and being ready. And again, as we lay the groundwork, you may be listening and say, thank God I don't own a business because there's a lot of stuff that you have to think about owning a business. Well, here's the catch 22. You operate a business. It's called your personal money business. So why we wanted to lay the groundwork for this first part is to help you understand that if you're going to be successful in business, these are just the baseline things that you need to think about to be successful. What if we told you that they were very similar in your own personal money business? And so now that you're following in, we're going to segue into the second part, looking at what does it look like to have your own personal scoreboard? 
So Travis, we just talked about all the important aspects if you operate a business and how to keep your business scoreboard. And there was a lot to digest. Somebody may be driving in their car or listening to this and going, I got a lot of work to do. And that's okay. We'd rather you know exactly what you need to start to work on so you can improve your life. As we always say, it's your money, it's your life. Outside of a business, you also have your own personal scoreboard because you operate your own money business, whether that's you yourself, you and your spouse, whatever it may be, thinking about your family, there is a money business that you operate or don't operate, but it still exists. And so if you've listened to our last two episodes talking about your money business and the players, you may be wondering, okay, I've started to understand those aspects, but now how do I start to gain momentum? What are the things, Travis, with your own personal financial scoreboard that somebody listening needs to think about? We're trying to get to financial freedom. Always. I had an awesome, um, sort of grapevine kind of, somebody shared with me the other day that their, their friend's financial freedom point is age 50 and they figured out they need about $5 million by the time they get to age 50 to be financially free to do whatever the heck they want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't about not working anymore. They just want to do the part of their job that they love the most. They don't want to have to worry about how much it, you know they make doing it. Right. So you have to start from age 50 and work backwards. Where do you need to be along the way? What are the things you need to do to get there? If you're just focusing on the 5 million number because of the way compounding math works, you're going to be really stressed out until about the last year. Mm-hmm. So we got to break it down into bite-sized chewable pieces. And this is where I think keeping track does matter, especially on your personal side. You know, Normally, we're saying don't measure yourself against others. In this case, I think that's true. You, but you need to measure yourself against yourself. Right. So you're going to do an appraisal on yourself. Only this time, instead of calling it an appraisal, we're going to call it a balance sheet. And so a balance sheet literally is what needs to go towards that goal. What things should you be tracking? The value of property, uh, any debts that you have, the value of your accounts, investment accounts, insurance, those types of things. That's your balance sheet. Mm -hmm. That's your personal appraisal. That's your net worth, if you will, Mm -hmm. if something happened to you today. That's your starting point. Mm -hmm. Because you have to get from there, in this case, to $5 million. There's things you're going to need to do to get there. How you save, how you invest, how you know how much you spend periodically, if you get an inheritance or a windfall, if you make aggressive investments, conservative investments, taxes, the negotiation, a job contract, all kinds of things are going to influence that balance sheet. You have to look at from a personal readiness standpoint. And I don't mean like, obviously, you're ready for, for financial freedom, but the, the readiness comes from... Are you ready to do what you need to do to achieve that goal? People set goals all the time that they are not ready to commit to, whether it's stress management or weight loss or going to the gym or whatever it is that we're trying to do. We, we you know, New Year's Eve comes along and we all set our new, our new Year's resolution. And how many people throw that out by the end of January? Week one. Week one, you know, and that's pretty common. So are you ready? Do you, are you committed to actually achieving this goal? And that's where the, you have to own the goal. Yep. This place where you're going has to be yours and yours alone. And you have to own it. You have to believe in it. It has to be something that is important to you, not something that somebody else put in your head. Mm-hmm. 
And that was just something that you used to listen to growing up. So therefore you got it. Oh, I'm supposed to get a million dollars because my parents used to, we used to play the game of life growing up and they would talk about, wow, you need a million dollars to get there. So a million dollars sticks in people's head. That is an arbitrary number that means nothing to anybody other than somebody who needs exactly a million dollars. And even then you got to figure out the taxes and other issues that come along with it. So you got to have personal readiness and you got to have financial readiness. Well, you need the balance sheet so you can start figuring out the financial readiness. Do you have the, do you actually have the, 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 the horsepower, if you will, to get from where you are today to where you want to get, or do you need to make some major changes? You don't need to go to back to school, change careers, uh, spend less, save more, downsize, move to a different community. You can't just throw a goal out there and say, hey, I'm five foot six and I I am not athletic at all when it comes to basketball. I can't just say I'm going to go play in the NBA. I don't I, I just don't have the tools to do that. It doesn't matter how much I believe in it. it. doesn't matter how much I go practice. I would never get there. I believe so. It. I got to have a goal that matches me. Right. So you got the balance sheet. You got the personal readiness. You got the financial readiness. But to even even stop there, we, you know, we've been leading up in all these episodes talking about these are very real conversations. Sometimes deferred hope is such a arbitrary thing we tell ourselves. Someday I'm going to be in shape, or someday I'm going to be better with my money. Um, someday I'm going to have this lake house. Someday I'm going to have this dream home. Well, what are you doing? Are you doing that, or do you just you tell everybody around you that that's what you're working towards because it sounds good and it's. Maybe you're just tired of the place you're in. So the place you think you're going just sounds that much more attractive and it, it helps you deal with whatever you're going through. If this last year has re- revealed anything to us, we're all dealing with things. Circumstances don't stop. There is never not a time in your life where things are just going to be easy and comfortable, but the perspective in the way in which you see things can help you get out of some very difficult or challenging situations. In the first part, we talked about business readiness. You know, as a business owner, wouldn't you want somebody to come in and rip your business apart head to toe and tell you what it's really worth or where it could go? Because then you know what to build for. You know, so many people, you're talking about that personal weight loss journey. You ever went and actually talked to a personal fitness coach? If you walk in there and you want your life to look better, they are going to pick apart every part of your life that is sabotaging you or not leading to a life of discipline. So even if you wanted to lose weight, if you're not going to the gym and you're not eating right and you're not taking care of yourself, you don't want a personal trainer making you feel good by going, hey, it's not that bad. You're doing okay. No, you want somebody to to look at you and, and be gracious with you, but say, if you want to get from point A to point B, then here's exactly what you need to eat. Here's exactly what you need to do. And you can either take that and feel bad and say, what a jerk, but that's what you want. You want somebody to come alongside you. Same thing with your money. Money is such a, a challenging thing because it's not a social conversation as we've talked about many times. You don't sit around with friends and say, yep, here's my balance sheet. What do I do? Or what are you guys doing? We just kind of take our cues from what we assume other people are doing or you know, what car they have or how often they go on vacation or you know, their family looks like they have it all together. We have no idea what it's like behind people's walls in their home, what they're dealing with. And so what you're talking about is having these three aspects, understanding your own personal balance sheet, having a real honest understanding of your own personal readiness, and then your financial readiness. What are you actually working towards? I love that example that you give by 50 years old, having $50 million, because at least now we know what we're working towards. And again, it's not just the money or the number. It's you could be sitting here 45, 55, 65. 
What is wealth to you? What is money to you? What do you want this stuff to do? When do you want to retire? What does retirement look like? And then you can backtrack and say, well, to get to where you're wanting to go, here's the things you need to improve. Here's the things you need to stop doing. Here's where you need to be saving. Here's the ways that you can save taxes and doing that along the way. But again, I think this kind of leads us into then again, just like in a business, we want to talk about then identifying goals and priorities. So when we're talking about our own personal finances, Travis, what are some things that we want to look at in terms of goals and priorities? But just like a, a business, you're going to start with your risk and opportunities. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we take so much for granted because we're either living in regret or we're being optimistic that we'll get it together in the future, we miss the moment. Mm-hmm. We miss what's happening right now. The thing, the risk right now that we can deal with, we can de-risk things that we can do to make things a little bit more predictable for ourselves or a little bit safer for ourselves, or we miss the opportunities. We miss the things that can really help get us set up. And I would say this is the don't close your eyes rule. We were talking to a a client, um, Andrea and I had a meeting uh, uh, about a month ago and the client is the type of person they like to invest their own money. So we do the financial planning, they invest their own money. And we asked them, so what do you do when the market goes down? He said, so I close my eyes. So that is both at a a point of risk. Mm -hmm. That's how you're dealing with risk. And by closing your eyes, you miss the opportunity that the risk creates. That's good. So when you're looking at where you want to be and you say, okay, this is my point of financial freedom. This is where I'm starting. The only thing that you can really do that makes a huge difference is focus on eliminating as much risk as possible and taking advantage of as much opportunities as you can. The more risk you have, the more opportunities you're going to need to take. But those are the things you can, and you can, they're in the moment, they're fleeting things. If you're not prepared when the the opportunity presents itself, you know, they always, growing up, you had the Michael Jordan signs. It was success is, what is it? Preparation plus opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're not ready when the moment comes, you're going to miss the shot. Right. So you've got to get ready so you could take advantage of it. So just like on a business, you're looking at what are the risks? What are the things that could sabotage me making financial, being becoming financially free? And believe me, there are a lot of risks. What are the things you can control? What are the things you can't? If you can't control them, how do you minimize them? And what are the things that could supercharge you, get you there faster without significantly increasing the risk. Or if you're increasing the risk, at least you're doing it in a way that you understand. And again, you're trying to minimize it. It's not an all or nothing Russian roulette thing. Your life is too important to bet it all on black. So so can you go go through those two, right? We don't want to just paint some pictures for people, right? We're talking about risks. Walk us through what are some of the risks uh, that somebody in their own personal finance could be facing? So the obvious ones are you have investment risk, mm-hmm. but investment risk is funny because it can go both ways. You're taking too much risk, you'll lose all your money. You're taking not enough risk, you're not going to make enough money. Um, there's premature death risk. If you're a couple and you're relying on your partner and your partner's something's disrupted your partner, you know, you have just as much risk with two people as you have with one because if you're two people and you're interrelying on each other, now there's two people that something that could happen to. So what are the odds that something happened to one of two people versus just one person? It's actually an increased odds that one of you are going to have 
something happened in your life that's going to derail you, whether it's a health effect, you know, something that happens and, and it's a disability or a premature death or um, a loss of a, a job because a company closes and go bankrupt or something like that. There's going to be something that happens there. So we want to look for those things that could make a material impact that could completely derail you, um, such as death, disability, lost job, you know, those types of things. Just slight emergency if you have kids and depending on the financial stability of your kids and your, your financial commitments to the kids, there's an awful lot of risk associated, obviously, with being a, you know in charge of taking care of somebody financially and kids more and more are needing more and more financial support into adulthood, it seems like these days. So you've got you know a lot of risk associated with that too. So it's just looking at some people end up taking care of their parents financially. Some people end up taking care of grandkids. Some people end up having to care for each other and their physical health isn't there. So there, there's a lot of thing, risk things that kind of jump up and get you. I, I think the key though with, with this is just like in the business stuff, you there's only so much premium to go around. Think of it as an insurance budget, not saying that you buy insurance for all this stuff, but there's a budget and the, it's a budget of effort, time, and, and money it's all kind of piled into one. And let's pretend you have 10 points of budget. You can only apply so much. You only have 10 points to give out. So you, can, you can't deal with every risk in life, mm-hmm. but you need to deal with the ones that are, would be the most destructive in your situation for you, which means it's about your situation, not somebody else's. Somebody else might have a completely different risk profile than you. But when you are able to look at the risks and the subsequent opportunities that come with a set of risks, and you could say, hey, here's my situation. Here's what's most important to me. Let me prioritize these things. Normally, you de-risk first. Again, you want to protect what you have before you try to go get more. Some people have that a little bit backwards. That's okay. You can work through that. But you prioritize that. And that's how you start to establish those leading measures. So you could say, look, I need to come up with a plan that can do I back to that whole, am I ready financially? Do I have the horsepower to get from point A to point B the way that I want to get there? Can I get, can I literally get there financially? And am I ready to do that? Then you might go to, okay, if my investments are going to be a big part of this, what do I need to do to allow them to get me there? And what are the risks associated with that? Maybe I've got a big pension and maybe I work for a company that's in financial trouble. That's a risk. Maybe that pension is not going to be there. Hmm. I have to take those things into account. But I can start to set up my, my leading and lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do, we try to take people, we try to put them on a, a two to three week schedule. So a business, you're going to be on 90 day schedules just because it's normally much more involved with a number of different people where there's legal stuff or accounting stuff really mixed. And it's that kind of heavy work stuff that you're trying to do. It's pretty invasive. On a personal finance standpoint, you most of the time you could tackle this stuff, you know, in the evenings or on the weekends or something like that. And if you go too long uh, between kind of addressing your priorities or your risks, things start to get muddled and out of order, and you can't you can't really figure out where to go next. And so you end up with Swiss cheese, a lot of holes in the middle of it. So. We want to, once we've identified the risk and the opportunities, we want to get back into that master planning phase. But for families or individuals, you're going to be more on like a two or three week cycle uh, where you start to work through things in order that you can make decisions one after another on. 
For instance, you can't figure out your investments. You can't figure out your insurance needs. You can't figure out what to de-risk until you figure out where you are today and where you're going. Mm -hmm. This idea, and people all the time, they come in and we want to pay you to tell us which pension selection to pick. I'm sorry, but that would be malpractice to tell you that without doing a full, complete workup. You don't go, you know, you don't go into your physician and, and get them to give you medications without a diagnostic. Right. You have to go through the, the these steps. You have to build upon one concept on, onto another. So um, you have to keep organized and moving forward. And normally for individuals, that's on a two, three-week process where instead of a 90-day sprint where you're tackling one thing at a time, you're doing it in 14 to 21 days. You know, we're make this decision, deal with this issue first, and then move on to the next one, deal with that, move on to the next one, deal with that. Well, or nor, a series of normally like five to six cycles. Well, and, and you, you've raised a lot of risks. You've raised kind of, you know, here's how these meeting works, two to three weeks apart to really take you from where you are. Let's do a real assessment to what are we building towards. So they're bite size. The risk that you talked about, if any of us knew on our timeline when we were going to become disabled or when we were going to leave the earth, I mean, it sounds really rudimentary, but I mean, then you know what I mean? You can plan for it. None of us know. And whether you've lost somebody prematurely, it does something to you because it realizes it shows you your humanity and that none of us know when anything is going to happen. None of us know when we're going to lose our job. None of us know when something's going to happen to our spouse and they can become chronically ill. No one plans for that. But what we're trying to do is help build in those guardrails that you talked about, that just like a business can't always know what's going to come, you still have to be prepared to pivot and make sense. And if something does happen, were we ready to some degree and what can we do? It's the same thing like if any of you listening have children, you know, when you are trying to teach your kids something, you don't throw everything at them all at once because it's too overwhelming. They can't learn it all. They can't take it in. When it comes to personal finance, Sometimes people don't want to come off as not understanding. So they just agree and nod and go, yeah, okay. But internally, they really have no idea. And we've walked, we've worked with people from all different walks of life, those that are just getting started off and trying to build their financial future to those that have accumulated millions of dollars in assets. But the conversations are all sometimes really the same around, you know, when you start to break it down and you're talking about these risks and these opportunities and you ask people questions, what if something happens in this? Or what if, you know, this happens? Or what if you do this? Have you thought about this? And a lot of times people will say, no one's ever asked me that. Or I've never even thought about that. You know, I've just looked at the numbers, like you said, in one of our other podcasts, I just look at my statement every month. And as long as that's going up in value, it seems like the plan, quote unquote, is working. But if you really peel that onion back, could you be honestly say that you have a plan in place? And I know you've done a really nice job of trying to help people establish what are these indicators? Where are we at today? What are we building towards? And again, wouldn't you rather have somebody come alongside of you right now, wherever you are on this day, and give you an honest assessment of, you just told me all of these things, but what if I told you you're not doing anything to actually build upon that? we talked about in the first segment with businesses, a lot of businesses struggle to do the things that you talked about. And that's okay. There's no shame in admitting that you don't have it all figured out. And maybe the plan isn't working the way that you wanted it to. We would applaud you by saying, congratulations of being self-aware that you need help. We all need help in some degree. You know, if you're a small business owner, you, you thrive on people that don't know how to fix their, their homes. 
right? If you're a plumber, you're in the trades, you love people that don't know how to do stuff in their homes because it creates space for you to come in and show your worth. Thank God for doctors, because we need to go in and have somebody help us understand what they went to school for, for years and diagnose things. We can get better with our health. Same thing with financial professionals. You want somebody that can be an advocate in this money business that you have to come alongside and put a team in place that can help you understand where you're at today, where are you trying to go? And then let's take these bite-sized pieces that you have to start to help you make one decision after another, two to three weeks apart, so that you can understand everything that is being said to you and breaking it down in a way that takes you from a vagueness or uncertainty to now actually building that momentum. And we've seen it firsthand. People come in, they start going through this process and they start building excitement. They start starting to understand the bigger picture. It's almost like going from ground level and backing up farther and farther and farther that now all of a sudden you see the picture in a way that you never did because maybe right now it's all spreadsheets. Maybe right now it's all a smudge podge of just statements everywhere and maybe you understand it, but we would say, what about your spouse, right? One of the questions about risk is if you're not here, are, are they going to be able to put all these pieces in place of this quote unquote plan that you have? But I think what is confusing and where we want to pivot in this last section is, did you know that the financial industry also has a scoreboard? And how do you make sense of what's on their scoreboard so that you can be empowered to talk about your own personal finance and how to make momentum? So stay tuned for this next section. So we just spent the entire last segment talking about your own personal scoreboard. We talked in the first part about business scoreboards. Did you know that the financial industry also has a scoreboard? So Travis, why don't you walk us through some of the things in the financial industry people should be aware about? So much of the financial industry is really just focused on what we call asset gathering. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to do enough financial planning off, we used to call it the side of the desk. So these are firms that don't charge anything for the financial planning because they get compensated when you buy products or invest through them. And the scorecard is how many assets are gathered. In fact, almost every single award within the industry is just focused on how many assets were gathered at firm A or firm B. That's pretty much the focus of it. So you have to kind of be aware of how the game is played and how do you identify this? Because these are very competent, very, very good professionals working in these jobs, thinking they're doing what's right because that's how they've been trained. But what happens is two things. Um, One I would say is called incomplete planning. And the second is called unfinished planning, (laughs) incomplete and unfinished kind of the same thing, but I mean different things by them. So incomplete planning, what I mean is you've gotten to the extent of your financial professional's skill set or capabilities or registrations. Maybe they're not allowed to go any further. Maybe their company prevents them from going any further. So you hired a financial professional to put together a financial plan to help you with your investments, all this kind of stuff. And they essentially... They're not skilled in elder care, you know, how all the whole nursing home things work, how the assets work in that, you know, how how self-pay or insure, that kind of thing. They know how to sell you long-term care insurance, but they don't necessarily understand from an advanced planning concept who should be self-insuring, right? uh, who would qualify, you know, for aid, state aid, welfare programs or not. They may not be super sophisticated with estate planning. Every state has different laws or states with inheritance taxes or state taxes. How do they work? Uh, how do taxes get passed on to your heirs? It's a thing called IRD, income and respected descendant, the taxability that you're passing on. 
practicalities within the state. How does an estate actually settle? Uh, some of the tax planning mechanisms that you might do while you're alive to maximize your wealth that you leave beyond. There's college planning specialties. There's investment specialties. You can have a CFP and still not be very capable in certain areas, certain specialty areas of planning. Philanthropy is a great example. Uh, I've worked with very few clients that came in that had an advisor who had a previous advisor that really the advisor had presented them opportunities for charitable direct RMDs or donor advised funds or using capital gains instead of cash and all these other strategies that you can use to manage your tax bill while maximizing your philanthropy. Um, These are areas that they are nuanced and they are specialized. Just because you work with person A doesn't mean that they're going to bring you the resources, even of the entire firm, because of how the firms are set up. So I think you get a lot of incomplete planning, which leads you to you could have a great, like when we we're talking about leading indicators, let's say that there's 10 things you need to do to get to financial freedom. That person maybe got you through the first five, but they can't get you through the last five. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get there. Right. You just, and they may have been great at the first five, but they're not capable of the last five. And our industry is a dog eat dog industry. So very rarely are you going to have an advisor raise their hand and say, well, I don't do that stuff. You'll have to go get another advisor because they're going to be afraid that you can take the assets to that other company. Right. Or even if it's an internal thing, they'll have to split whatever revenue they're making off of you with another advisor. So typically they won't do it. Right. Um, the other part of planning was the unfinished planning. And this is what happens when you get in this relationship. It's like the honeymoon phase. It's so exciting. They're spending so much time with you. They're so responsive. Then you buy some investments or some insurance products, some annuities or something. And all of a sudden, that's it. Planning's done. They bought the products. Literally, it's over. There's nothing else that happens until you call them back up. And then you go back in and it's another sales pitch. It's buy more of this product, buy that insurance. I've seen people and I call them collectors. Every time they go visit, I had a client, every time she visited with her advisor, she was buying more. She had three long-term care insurance policies, two life insurance policies with long-term care rights. She had, she didn't even need long-term care insurance. She had five long-term care policies. I don't even know if that's possible somehow. She got five of them. She kept buying every time she went there because every time she walked in, the advisor was like, hey, this is, this is great. This, you need this. This is good. You know, and it was what. If I asked her, why do you have that one? It was because they said I needed it. If I asked her, where are you going? She couldn't tell me where she was. She hired us to create that map for her. The problem was those pieces, none of those pieces fit the map. They were all these extra things that she had collected over time, essentially to pay somebody every time she talked to them. Hmm. And so, so you get unfinished planning because you get to the point where somebody makes a paycheck and then they kind of close up shop. Until you come around again, and then it's you know kind of rinse and repeat. That is a huge majority of the business. We ran into a client that um, is using a, an advisor, very very big advisor. I've I've seen this a couple of times with clients coming from large firms, and I'm looking at it going, man, this is going to be. I can't wait to see their work. It's going to be impressive stuff. And it's unfinished work. Basically, the advisor stopped. These are big-time financial planning investment managers, and they stopped exactly at the point where they got the money. As soon as that person transferred the money in, the planning stopped. And I, you know, you say, okay, so you set this up three years ago. What happened since then? Yeah, I've retired. I got another inheritance. I did this, this, and this. And they never adjusted it. No, they never even asked. Well, don't you think that's important? Right. 
to have these things coordinated, you're here. You are trying to take advantage of every opportunity you have, which means you need to have a, a big picture idea, trying to manage risk. And and the people you're hiring have no clue some of these other things going on in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre. Uh, but that's that's the way the industry is designed. In fact, a lot of times in your contracts, in your agreements with your advisors, you'll find fine print that says the financial planning engagement and responsibility ends. The fiduciary responsibility associated with it ends at the conclusion of this contract, which basically means when I give you that big fat financial plan, I am no longer responsible for financial planning. Now I'm responsible for product sales. And most firms actually have that legit, like hard cutoff where I gave you advice. Now let me sell you the products to go with it. You will have fee only RAs like us, registered investment advisors like us, that really because of the way that we work, that responsibility never ends. Mm-hmm. But you still have to dig in there. Financial planning, if you're trying to get the most out of your money, if you're trying to get more value out of your money business, right? So your money business, let's say, could be worth anywhere from 2 to $8 million over the next 30 years. And the only difference is what you do to minimize your risk and take advantage of your opportunities between now and then. Don't you want to don't you want to be on top of those things? You don't want your eyes closed, right? We said no eyes closed rule. You don't want your eyes closed. You want to be taking advantage of everything you can because you only get so much time to get there. Mm-hmm. Well, some of that stuff's not quick and easy. You would have to spend as much time on the little stuff. You know, the the stuff that has nothing to do that that it has everything to do but it doesn't have you you, you can't just draw a straight line from it all the way to the end. It's the little things that make the big thing happen. 90% of that time is spent in the process about you, what's unique about you, how your life is happening, how we need to adjust things to match up with your progress or right. your family's progress. And, and that most of the time, because of how advisors are incentivized or financial firms are, are you know, compens- you know, charge compensation, there's no time for that. They don't want to spend it. They don't want to invest the time in that. That's that's not scalable to spend that kind of time with you. We might spend 25, 30 hours with a new client. How do you, How we have done hundreds of financial plans and it doesn't matter if it's a client without a lot of money or a lot of money. It's 20 to 30 hours to onboard a new client. How could you as a client, if you're dealing with somebody, have gotten the financial planning that you deserve so that you know how to, your financial advisor knows how to best invest for you in a, in, in a, in a, let's say three hours in the three hours that you've spent with them. It's impossible. I will tell you, I will promise you that it's impossible. I met with an advisor one time. We were, we were debating recruiting this particular person. I said, how many clients do you have? He goes, I have 500. I said, how many of them do you do financial planning for? He says 500. I said, no, you don't. How many hours do you think a financial plan actually takes to maintain a year? About 11 to 12 hours minimum. So 500 times 11 or 12, you do the math. There's not enough time for that one person in that day. He didn't even have any staff. Mm -hmm. So if you're out there listening to this and you're thinking, I don't spend very much time on this. And, you know, come to think of it, I spend maybe an hour to three hours a year talking to somebody. And pretty much we spend focusing on only the investments. You need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to get an appraisal done. Right, work out that balance sheet. Find where that financial freedom point is for you. That's maybe you're already financial free. What's your next set of goals then? Where do you want to get to? Sure. Maybe it's for the kids, grandkids, whatever. 
put that flag in the sand because now you can start working on goals to get from A to B. Are you ready to do it? Do you have the financial horsepower to do it? Put a team around yourself that's going to get you there. Well, and you and I talked about recently, you know, we, we meet with a lot of people that come and test the waters with us. They'll take that first free meeting to have a conversation and they'll share about their experience. And we ask questions as to how did you make that decision or why did you hire that group? And I think because money is such a difficult topic for a lot of people and they don't understand it because it wasn't taught in their home. They didn't learn it in school. They don't know what a good decision is. And anybody sitting on the other side of the table, especially if they're dressed nice, wearing a suit, they're saying all the right things and showing you fancy charts and colors and graphs. They only want you to look at two pages of a 50-page disclosure. Yeah. Spider sense should go off immediately. It's overwhelming and you don't want to make a bad decision. So you just do something. A lot of the risk too is doing the wrong thing because you just didn't know because you're losing out on potential opportunities on the other side. So if you're listening to this and you've engaged an advisor and you just know something isn't right, ask great questions. You're a consumer. If you've never worked with a planner before, understand that financial planning is not buying stuff. That's what garage sales are for. <laughs> okay. Financial planning is not just, I'm going to indicate a need, and then I can also sell you this product. That's a conflict of interest because yeah. you have no way as a consumer of really knowing, well, is there something else I could have done? Is there something better that could have helped me? And if you don't know to ask that question, it's not their fault for presenting that to you because they did it and you complied with it. What we're trying to say is what if there was a better way of operating and managing your money business where we understand it can be intimidating. We've tried to lay the groundwork for maybe where to get start. We've talked about having these every three week meetings, uh, starting to understand the pieces in place, starting having those measurables, letting go of the things you can't control or the things that are in the past or in the past, let them go, learn from them. But how can you get from where you envision in your mind, where you are today and where you want to go? And then what is the way that you can get there, avoiding conflicts of interest as much as possible by having somebody or a group of people in your money business that help you make good decisions when it comes to understanding your cash flow, your investments, protecting your estate, reducing income tax, and making sure that you're doing all the things you want to do. So in this episode of understanding the different scoreboards available to you, we hope it's made a difference. As always, if this podcast has resonated with you, please subscribe, leave a comment, helps other people find this podcast and stay tuned. We've got a great episode for number seven. Until next time, have a great day. Thanks for listening. Ready to ditch the suits? Remember, it's your money and your life. For more information, visit seedpg.com. That's seedpg.com. If this podcast has impacted you, we ask that you subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. And be sure to share with a friend.